Good morning, everyone. Is this a Baptist church? Independent. I figured you're all sitting at the back. The Baptists usually sit at the back. If they sit near the front, they're just having a fight. <laughs> good to have you. Good to be here this morning. Good to have you here in chapel. Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. That, of course, is in your Old Testament, as you know. 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll read a few verses and then we'll just get right into the text of Scripture. 1 Kings chapter 18. My text this morning is found, and you can look over in the chapter. You'll get down to verse 38. We haven't got the time probably to read the whole chapter. I would love to do that for this story, but notice 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 38. It says, Then the fire of God fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. If we could shorten it up even to more than just a, just a few uh, words in the verse, then the fire of God fell. That's what I want to talk about. Then the fire of God fell. Let's pray for a minute. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity of being here at the school and sharing your word. We ask, Lord, that you'll help us to understand the text. And as we study it, and as it is applied by the Holy Spirit to our hearts, we pray that there will be a response. And Lord, in our day, we need the fire of God, the power of God, so God, speak to our hearts that we might learn from this text how we can have the power of God in our ministry and in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three periods of miracles, as you know, in the Bible. The first period had to do with uh, Moses in the land of Egypt. You know that the children of Israel were down there. They were slaves in Egypt. It was a pretty tough time. Jehovah God had pretty much been forgotten about. And God broke through by calling Moses to be the leader, to lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. And you are aware of the ten plagues. That's the first period of miracles is in the Bible. The last period of miracles that we have recorded in Scripture, of course, are the times of the Lord Jesus Christ when He was walking on the earth. We don't need to go through and list some of those miracles. You know many of them uh, by heart when you read the New Testament and read about uh, Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead and Lazarus from the dead and the, and the calming of the sea and, and of course, the uh, opening of the eyes and the unstopping of deaf ears. That's the third period of miracles. The second period of miracles has to do with Elijah and Elisha, of course. That's where we are in the book of First Kings and it goes right into Second Kings as well. Uh, I hope that you understand that particular period in history. There were three kings in Israel, and after the third king, of course, Solomon, the kingdom divided and went to north and south. And when we read here in 1 Kings, it has to do with the northern kingdom of Israel and the, and the seventh of the, of the kings of the northern part of Israel. The seventh king was Ahab. And the Bible says that he was more wicked than all of the kings who were before him. Now, when you think of Ahab, you've got to think of a couple of things. Number one, you need to think of the fact, the Bible says, that he followed the sins of Jeroboam. 
Jeroboam was the first king of the northern kingdom. And Jeroboam was the fellow who didn't want his people going to Jerusalem to worship. And he set up calf worship. In the northern kingdom, in the northern part of that, there was a place where they could go and worship a calf. And in the southern part, there was a place where they could go and worship the calf. So he followed in the path of Jeroboam and the sins of Jeroboam and the worship of Jeroboam and the worship of the calf and all that kind of thing. Uh, Ahab married a lady whose name was Jezebel. She was the daughter of a priest uh, who ruled over a little country just north of Israel, Zidon. Very, very interesting because uh, her father was a a priest of Baal, of the, the false god Baal. So when Ahab married... Jezebel, not only did Israel, uh, were they encouraged to worship the gods of Jeroboam, the cows, but Jezebel brought into Israel Baal worship. So there was a, a syncretism taking place. Syncretism is the attempt to combine two different beliefs. Now the god of Baal, you've heard about that, you read your Old Testament, you know that uh, Baal was the god of fertility. If you wanted to have good crops in your ground and your garden to do well, you prayed to Baal. Baal was the god of rain. If you you were married and you couldn't get pregnant and you wanted to have children, you prayed to the god of Baal. There were a lot of wickedness involved in Baal worship. There was child sacrifice and immorality and, and prostitution and all of those kinds of things. So this is what it was like in, in Israel during this time, during the time of Ahab. Now, uh, God uh, wanted again the people to become aware that that he was alive and he was the God of Israel. So God sent a fellow by the name of Elijah to confront this wicked man, King Ahab. And he told him there was not going to be dew nor rain for three uh, years. And I'm sure Ahab just laughed until a few weeks went by and a few months went by and there was no rain and all the fun of his laughing turned to fury when there was a shortage of water and when the ground wasn't producing and when the animals were starting to starve and and all of that kind of thing. And God knew that Ahab would get mad. So God hit Elijah. He hit him by the brook Cherith. And after the brook dried up, he was sustained by living in a widow's house in Zarephath. And uh, Ahab's fury, Ahab searched the country to find the prophets of God. And according to the text here, if you read these two or three chapters that are before chapter 18, you will discover that he killed many of the prophets of God. Now, if we want to parallel that to today, I suppose we could. There really is is a great turning away from God in the Bible today, in the society in which we live. And and we're full of wickedness, our society is, and and immorality. And you don't have to have an uh, over-active imagination, you know, to figure out that uh, we're on a slide in the wrong direction morally in our country, in Canada and the United States, and the God of pleasure and loose living is, has taken over. So after the period of time, this famine in the land of Israel, uh, Ahab uh, is confronted by Elijah, and, and, and a showdown is announced. Here's how we'll prove who the real God is. Now, I hope you have your Bible open. Keep it on your lap, if you would. And notice... Uh, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. Then it happened when uh, Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, 
Oh, that's you, O troubler of Israel. You're the one that's troubling Israel. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> he wasn't the one at all, but that's the way it goes here. Verse 18, and he said, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me to Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Ashtaroth who eat at Jezebel's table. So it's showdown time. And the God that answers by fire here, he's going to be the real God. And uh, all the people gathered, 850 to 1. Imagine, 850 to 1. And then a few of the uncommitted people of Israel were there watching. And, and the great statement that Elijah comes out with is, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. And if Baal, then follow him. But let's prove today who the real God is. And the, the, the text goes on, and it's interesting. I hope you know this story because it's very, very fascinating. We go to Mount Carmel. Uh, I've been on Mount Carmel. It's, a, it's called a garden land. It's a mountain that can be seen pretty much from every location in Israel. It's about halfway between where Jezebel was from, north of Israel, and, and Jerusalem. Uh, it's about 1,800 feet up in the air. There's lots of shrubbery and trees and flowers and, and all that kind of thing. And when you get on top of the mountain, if you look to the north, there's the, the city of Haifa, Israel's seaport city, where they keep their submarines and all of that. And if you look off to the west, there's the Mediterranean Sea. So there they were. This is actual history. This is not a made-up story. This is exactly what happened. They went up to Mount Carmel, and the deal was... You guys who are the prophets of Baal and Ashtaroth, you build an altar and you bring down fire from heaven. The God that answers by fire will be the real God. And when you're done, then it'll, then it'll be my turn. So uh, from morning to night, they built the altar. And, and uh, they danced around it, had a great time. They must have had a great time. People seem to like dancing. You can even go to some churches today and dance. <laughs> and it said, put no fire under it. They built the altar and said, put no fire on because the prophets of Baal were tricky. They would build an altar and they'd put a concealed part in the ground and they would put some live coals there. And then they would cover it all up. And then they'd go round and round and round and round the altar and create a wind effect. And the coals would get red and light up and fire would come out of the, the bottom of the altar. They were really good at trickery. They were good at deception. False teachers are always good at deception. It says in the last days, but evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's just the devil. It says they even leaped on the altar. You got your Bible there in your, in your lap? Look at this. Some of this stuff is really funny. It says in uh, verse 26, I believe it is, O Baal, hear us. And there's no one answered. It says, and they leaped upon the altar. <laughs> and so it was at noon, Elijah mocked them. This has got to be something. Cry aloud. He's a God. Maybe he's meditating or busy or on a journey or sleeping. You must be awakened. One of the translations says, maybe he's using the washroom. You need to get a home touch with him. Uh, they were really, he was really making fun of them. And they're going around there and cutting themselves and leaping on the altar and so on. <laughs> and no fire came. They did it all day. Can I ask you this? What's the greatest need in the church of Jesus Christ today? What's the greatest need? Is it money? Is it men? Is it new methods? Is it different music? Is it machinery? What's the greatest need in the church of Jesus Christ today? 
I think the greatest need is for fire. And can't say this. We don't need the fire that's worked up. We need the fire that's sent down. A lot of places they try to work up the fire. And they do some of the same things they were doing here. They run around and do all kinds of crazy things. But we don't need the fire that's worked up. We need the fire that comes down from heaven. And our nation sure needs fire. Fire in the Bible is an emblem and a symbol of the power of God. You remember Moses. <laughs> Boy, that was really something, wasn't it? At the, in the burning bush, the presence of God was there. You remember the pillar of fire that appeared at night as they were going through the wilderness. You remember when, Elijah, uh, when Moses was uh, on Mount Carmel, it says, says that the, the, the mountain was filled with smoke and the Lord descended in a fire. The presence and the power of God. You read about the day of Pentecost, cloven tongues as a fire. And we read in Hebrews, our God is a consuming fire. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit to fall upon the work of God, the fire that burns and, and consumes and illuminates and empowers. I guess you could say revival fire. It's really lacking today. Well, how do we get the fire of God? Because it says here, as you know, in verse 38, it says, then the fire of God fell. So what were the things that were put in place that made it right for God to answer and the fire of God to strike the altar? That's what I want to talk about. Well, if you look in verse 30, I think it uh, gives us the first one. Well, look at, the, look at verse 29. It's after midday was passed. They prophesied until the offering of the evening sacrifice. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So the prophets of Baal, they failed. Look, verse 30. And Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. That's the first thing he did. You say, what was it like? It wasn't like this pulpit. It was just stones on top of one another. They'd been, been up on it and, and, and dancing on it and all kinds of crazy things. And, and they had broken it down. The priests of Baal had broken it down. You know, an altar in the Bible always speaks of a place where we meet the Lord. An altar in the Bible always speaks of the fact that the Lord in our lives is in His rightful place. I believe before the fire of God will ever fall that the Lord has to be in His rightful place in our lives. I don't know the name of this university, but Dr. Marshall Craig was preaching at a southern university. He was speaking in a chapel service, and he was talking about placing your all upon the altar. He preached his heart out, and at the end of the message, he invited uh, students to come forward to give their lives to the Lord. And the president of the student body came forward, and some football players in that university came forward, and some of the young gals came forward, and the campus leaders, and they were honestly giving themselves to Christ. Near the end of the invitation, uh, Dr. Craig noticed something strange happening. At the back of the chapel and coming right down the center aisle was a guy crawling on all fours, his, his hands and his knees. And he didn't know what was going on. And so he was, uh, the president of the university was beside him. So he leaned over to the president and kind of asked, uh, you know, what was going on? And the president said, that boy is crippled. And that's the only way he can get around. 
And so Dr. Marshall Craig watched as the young fellow on his hands and knees came up and was right here in front of the little podium that they had. And Dr. Craig went over to the young fellow and the young man looked at the great preacher and said, uh, Sir, you said that God had a place for a man. I know that God has a place for these athletes and these muscles of steel. I know that God has a place for the campus leaders. But tell me, sir, does God have a place for a wretch like me? And Dr. Marshall said to him, Son, God's been waiting for a wretch like you. He was giving his all to the Lord. God is waiting for people to put him first in their lives. I love the story of Abraham and Lot. Left Ur of the Chaldees. You remember that? The Abrahamic covenant and all that stuff. You remember how Lot accompanied Abraham? Lot must have had a real understanding of what the promises of God were that God gave to Abraham. You know how that when they got in Canaan, uh, there's some wonderful things there. I love chapter 13 where they're all gathered around the altar and they're worshiping the Lord. And uh, Abraham, the Bible says, look for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker was God. And Number, the, number one in their lives was, was following the Lord, certainly in Abraham's life. Something happened regarding Lot. He got his eyes off the Lord. The Lord was no longer number one in his heart. He had become rich, and uh, there began to be strife. When there's strife among Christians, the Lord's not number one. And the Bible says that, that there was strife between Lot's herdsmen and Abraham's herdsmen. And it says that the, the Jebusite and the Parasite was in the land and they were watching people fight. And the unsaved love to watch Christians fight. And they go, ha, 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 and you want me to go to church, eh? That's how they react. That's how they reacted in the Old Testament. That's how they react today. You know the story of Lot. He made a bad choice. He chose the ground to feed his cattle towards uh, Sodom. He ended up, he pitched his tent towards Sodom. He ended up living in Sodom. He ended up being corrupted by the wicked lifestyle of Sodom. He ruined his life. He lost his loved ones. He became a drunkard and had incest, committed incest with two of his daughters. Lot started to go down when he left the altar. And the Lord was no longer number one in his life. My favorite New Testament story is John 6 of the little boy's lunch. You know that, that poor lunch? <laughs> Barely loaves two feet. Remember that story? That's a wonderful little story. And, and how, how are we going to feed this crowd, Philip? And you remember how they brought that little boy's lunch and gave it to Jesus. Now, the little boy didn't say, Lord, you can have half my lunch. Yeah, I, I'm willing to share. The little boy gave all of his lunch to the Lord Jesus. What a wonderful thing happened with that lunch. Have you ever given all of your lunch? All of you to Jesus because the fire won't fall until the Lord's number one in our lives. I was reading a couple of weeks ago and I read this statement. It took me a long time to figure out what it meant. It said, God wants us in his lap, not in his chair. You see, if we're in his chair, it means we're in control of our lives. He wants us in his lap, not in his chair. Elisha Hoffman was a Presbyterian. He was a wonderful preacher. He pastored in Pennsylvania. He's in heaven now. He was sold out to the Lord. He wrote these words. You might have sung them. It's an old hymn. 
For we never can know what the Lord will bestow of the blessings for which we have prayed till our body and soul he doth fully control and are all on the altar is laid. The fire of God did come down in Elijah's time. But first, before it came down, the altar was repaired. The Lord must be number one in our lives. I want you to notice first, not only was the altar repaired, but the sacrifice was offered. Look at verse 33. You still have your Bible there? It says, and he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. The altar was first repaired and then the sacrifice was made. Now, I I, I don't know what, uh, I can't give you the description of this cow, uh, this bull, uh, this ox, and this steer, but piece by piece, the sacrifice was made, piece by piece. says he cut it in pieces. And we know, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And we probably know this verse. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members, your pieces, as instruments of righteousness unto God. I love reading psychology magazines. Psychology Today is my favorite secular magazine. Big debate in recently about people giving their body parts uh, for money when they're down and out selling a kidney and all of that. If you have a driver's license in the province of New Brunswick, when you first get the, your license, there's a little, there's a little uh, perforated part on the bottom of your license where you can sign that saying that if you are, if you are killed in an automobile accident, your parts can be donated to science or, or to help somebody who may need one of your body parts. People sell their bodies all the time. That's what prostitution is about. That's the, the unlawful uh, use of the body. This is not talking about that kind of thing. When it says that they, that they, uh, they put the wood in order and, and, and cut the bull in pieces, when you say, uh, offer the sacrifice, I have a hard time to get a handle on that. Do you ever read the Word of God and say, what's that look like? Well, I'll tell you what it looks like for me. If I'm going to offer the pieces of the sacrifice, that means I have to offer my hands to the Lord. We can do a lot of hurt with our hands, can't we? Or we can minister a lot of love. It means we need to offer our feet <laughs> to the Lord. In fact, where do we go? It means we have to offer our eyes to the Lord. Nowadays, you live in a world where you can see a lot of filth if you want to. Our hearts and our minds need to be kept holy. Most of it's not on TV. Most of it's not on videos. Most of it's in the, uh, on the internet. Offered parts, our lips, filthy stories, dirty talk, bitterness, malice, hatred, vicious tongue, gossip. If I'm going to offer the sacrifice piece by piece, it's my hands. It's my feet. It's my eyes. It's my lips. 
that I need to present to the Lord. Piece by piece. It says, then, then the fire of God fell. First, the altar was repaired. Secondly, the sacrifice was offered. Piece by piece. I've got to hurry. Thirdly, the water was poured. <laughs> Did you see it? Verse 33. It says they laid the wood in order and filled four water pots with water. And they poured it on the sacrifice in the wood. Then they did it a second time. And it says then they did it a third time. Now I'm not real good in math, but four threes, I think, is twelve. Now how big were the jugs? I don't know. Someone said it was a time of famine. Where did they get the water? From the Mediterranean Sea. They poured the salt water on. That's where they got the water. They soaked it. The priests of Baal were good at putting live coals concealed in the ground and creating a little wind funnel and lighting the sacrifice. But Elijah wanted everybody to know this wasn't fire that was worked up but came down from God. So they poured the, the water on. Twelve buckets of it. Water is always a symbol of the Word of God. Most often, at least in the Scriptures. I was reading in John 3 this morning that wonderful story of Nicodemus, that the man be born of water, not of the Spirit. And there are many, many places we, we get our lives clean by the washing of water by the Word, don't we? So if we want to know when the fire of God fell, first the altar was repaired and then the sacrifice was offered in pieces and, and the water was poured. I believe uh, in application, meaning that if we want the fire of God to fall, we need to sacrifice, we need to saturate the sacrifice with water, with the Scriptures. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, then thou shalt have good success. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth its fruit in its season. Its leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. I believe that we Christians need to get serious about the Bible. We need to do more with our Bibles than carry them. We need to read them. The only way we can become like the Lord is to meditate on the Word and to be obedient to the Word. And the theme, the key verse of this institution is study. To show thyself approved unto God. The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. I'm not talking about debating the word. I'm talking about digesting the word. Making it a part of us. Saturate yourself with the Bible. The Bible's like water. It makes us clean, like the Old Testament priest who washed his hands and feet in the labor before he went in the holy place. The Bible is like a hammer because sometimes there's sin in our lives that's so stubborn and we need the hammer of the Word of God to pulverize the sin, to break it up. The Bible is like milk. It nourishes us. It's like meat. It sustains us. It's like a mirror. It shows us what we are like. 
We must know the Bible. We're getting there. Then the fire of God fell. When the altar was repaired, when the sacrifice was offered, and when the water was poured. There's one more. Look at verse 37. 36, 37. It came to pass in the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, and he prayed. So it's when the altar was repaired, the sacrifice was offered, the water was poured, and prayer was made. In the New Testament about Elijah, it says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know what Ian Bounds said? He said, where prayer focuses, power falls. I believe that Elijah prayed with intensity. I believe he prayed with seriousness. I don't believe there was coldness here. I believe when he prayed, he meant business. He was not playing. He was praying. If ever a man from the earnestness of his heart was praying, this man was laying hold on God. No wonder the fire came down. I counted them this morning. Just 63 words. I prayed it to see how long it would take. It took me 15 seconds. Prayer brings the power of God to bear on an otherwise hopeless situation. Prayer. For most people, it's a spare tire. You got a lump and you're going to the doctor and you're afraid it's cancer, get everybody to pray. I know all kinds of people who when they get sick or get something wrong with them, get everybody to pray. They call the church. They want the prayer chain started. They want everybody to pray in prayer meeting, but they never themselves have ever showed up in prayer meeting. Now, as a pastor, I go, you believe in prayer and you never come to pray and now you're sick and you want me to believe you're serious about prayer? We need revival fire. When does the fire of God fall? May I say this to you? When the altar is repaired and the Lord's put first. When the sacrifice is offered. When the water is poured and we're saturated with the word. And when prayer is made, that's when the fire of God falls. And that's what we need today. The power, an awareness of the presence and the power of God. Hymn writer said, power in prayer, Lord, power in prayer. Here mid earth's sin and sorrows and care, men lost and dying, Souls in despair, oh, give me power. Power in prayer. Now, I know all of you are getting ready to go into the Lord's work. Going out into the Lord's work today is pretty scary. I started in the Lord's work in 1969. 
and it's really different than it was in 1969. It's so different. I sometimes think I changed professions somewhere in the middle. It is so different. There are all kinds of antics and stunts and things that are constantly tried. And there's all kinds of swapping of church members from one mortuary to another. And there's a real, a real lack of evidence of the power of God and of people who are fully surrendered to the Lord, who have the Lord first place in their lives and who know the book and know how to pray. You be one of those ones. Where the Lord's first, where all the pieces of the sacrifice have been offered, whose life is saturated with the scriptures and learn how Lord, help us all. In the day and age in which we live, we can decry the darkness about us. We can criticize a thousand things. May we today deal with our own hearts and our own lives to make sure that we are in the place where your power and blessing attends and where you can work through us to touch the lives of others. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.